Thank you, and good morning. I can't believe it's been a year and a half. Seems like yesterday. And I also can't believe as I was standing there singing those songs with you that I left. I miss the Master's College. I miss the energy, the enthusiasm, the ministry, the emphasis on missions, the beach, the weather. Have you ever been anywhere where the humidity was so thick you had to cut it? Where the air is so heavy that at the end of the day you were tired from carrying it? That's Alabama. Truly, though, life in Alabama is very different than it is here. didn't take long to know that. I know it's not the age of uh, phonographs anymore. I know we use CDs and cassettes, but just imagine a 45 playing at 33 speed. That's life in Alabama, slow. When I first got to Alabama, I was unpacking, and I found out very quickly I needed a new bed. Mr. Tatlock and Mr. Brooks packed my water bed around my gas tank to my motorcycle. I suppose to protect it, but the smell of the gasoline that had been absorbed into the plastic. Have you ever slept in a refinery? But I went looking for a new mattress, and the uh, first thing I saw was a large ad in the Birmingham News, and it said warehouse sale. Macy's department store has a large warehouse in Birmingham. And I went down to find a new mattress, and I cruised into this huge, huge warehouse. I got some directions to the back of the warehouse where the mattresses were kept, and as I got back there, you wouldn't believe it. There were just rows and rows of beds, box springs, mattresses. And I quickly realized I knew nothing about mattresses. I had no idea which was good, what was not. And so I began to search for some help. And I found some in the corner of the warehouse. I couldn't find any kind of help readily available until I got to the corner, and you wouldn't believe it. There were four grandmother-like ladies circled around a 13-inch black-and-white screen watching Alabama play Penn State. (laughs) They were cussing the referee. They were spitting tobacco into a can. You need to know that if I didn't know I had changed cultures, I knew then. Life in Alabama is different. Well, I do want you to know, too, that I'm happy to be called of God to the pastoral ministry. I miss you. I wish I could transport our church, all 1,500 of them, to this place and let them sing with you. I miss what I felt this morning. And I wish that we could transport them here or you there an effort to allow them to taste the richness of what God has brought to this place. But I love the ministry. I work with doctors, bankers, lawyers, mechanics, housewives, secretaries, high schoolers, junior hires. I even teach fifth and sixth grade Awana boys on Wednesday night. You talk about a broad spectrum. I marry, I bury, I go to the hospital. But more than anything else, I counsel And I thought maybe this week, perhaps what God would have us do is have me address what has become the most predominant issue that I encounter in the ministry to people of all walks of life, all ages of life, and all stages. The key issue that I encounter has to do with staying alive spiritually. Megatrends 2000 a new book that has just come out. It's kind of the forecasting instrument of the secular community whereby they kind of project for us what to expect in the 1990s. 
And they have forecasted that the major religious issue of the 1990s has to do with true spirituality. You know, religion is out. Spirituality is in. People, Megatrends 2000 says, has not found, they have not found meaning in life through science, technology, or material things. Do you know that more than any other type of facility, museums are growing the fastest? We are building more museums in the United States than any other sort of civic facility. Why? Because people want some sort of true meaning in their spiritual life. They want to feel a living reality. One New Ager puts it this way, The way religion is traditionally presented has spoken to our inner selves less and less. People today want a living, feeling sense of spirituality. The book goes on to say that particularly among you, the college-aged and college-educated, there is a complaint of a lack of genuine spiritual experience. And the overarching theme that we will hear in the 90s, so says Megatrends 2000, is people crying for a true, living, spiritual experience. Two months ago, I traveled home to New Jersey and visited my family. I got a call late one night from my uncle. It was 10 or 11 o'clock at night. He lives 50 miles away from me. And he said, Harry, can I come see you? I said, sure, Jim, anytime. He said, I'd like to come tonight. Really? Really? I just got in, Jim. I really need to talk to you. And by the tone of his voice, and you know, you know how that goes, I knew that it was urgent, it was necessary. So he drove over from Delaware to New Jersey, and we sat down on the couch of my home. And I'll never forget this, because he began to expose to me the frustration of a 43-year-old man who has chased everything. He's had the finest of cars, the finest of homes. He's an avid hobbyist, sportsman. He has chased life in every possible arena. He has even professed to know Jesus Christ. And he sat on my couch and with tears running down his face, he said, My life is a wreck. It is meaningless. I'm divorcing your aunt. My children have no respect for me. Harry, what in the world can I do? I've gone to church. I've believed in Jesus Christ. I have sung songs. I've run the bus ministry. I have nothing within me that is satisfying. I am spiritually dead. What in the world can I do? I'd like you to take your Bible this morning and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Because I'm going to say to you this morning what I said to him. Believing that you, even though you live in this awesome spiritual environment, where daily, weekly you are encouraged and challenged to live for Jesus Christ and to taste the life that is truly life, I'll bet today some of you, for all of the amenities and the things here that help you, you really do find in your personal experience with God that there's a whole lot lacking. And what you really want is to taste God on a regular basis. You want to experience Him. 
You want some burning river of life to come flowing out of your soul more often. We've all tasted that. We know what it's like when we come to Christ and we experience His love and grace. And moment by moment, we begin to experience the richness of His life. It's awesome. But the problem is we can't bottle it. We can't control it. We can't make it happen when we want it to happen. And we begin to drift away and we lose the richness of that spiritual life. Would you like to know a way where you could drink of God regularly? Would you like to know of a biblical way whereby you can partake of God? Would you like to know a way whereby you could gain control over the temptations and the lust of your flesh? Would you like to know a way whereby your life could count for God, where you would not doubt your salvation but have deep and rich confidence in it? Would you like to know a way where you could stop riding the spiritual roller coaster? Sure you would. Who wouldn't? That's what I said to my uncle. I said, Jim, would you like that? Suppose I told you the Bible says there's a way. Well, you need to know that those eyes that were full of tears and that face that was so glum and depressed lit up like, like a lighthouse. And as they began to burn with hope, he said, man, show me. What do I have to do? Second Peter chapter 1. Verse 4, Peter writes and he says, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The word partaker means sharer, a participant, an experiencer, someone who tastes. Someone who feels, someone who experiences the reality of God. Peter is saying this, there is a way whereby a spiritual man and a spiritual woman can know what it means to taste God. That chair there that's empty. Suppose I told you this morning that if you sat there today, you would experience God. I mean, if you sat right there, that's the spot. And every time you sit there, you'll experience the richness of the person of the living God. We'd have a riot trying to get to that chair. Peter is saying there's a way. And the way is conditioned upon this. For by these he has granted to us, number one, precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. And furthermore, by them you will escape the corruption. And a good word for corruption is seduction. It was used of a maiden who, who seduced a man. The seduction that is in the world by lust. How do you taste God, number one, by means of precious and great promises? Jim, you know the first thing you need to do? You need to get acquainted with what God says and what God has promised you. Do you know why? Because these promises are His means, His instruments by which He enables you to truly know Him. Look at verse 2. Grace and peace, Peter says, is, is, is to be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now watch this. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Do you know what the promises are? They are the way whereby you can get this knowledge which links you to the grace of God, verse 2, and to the power of God, verse 3. The word knowledge says in some of your Bibles, true knowledge. It's not the normal word in Greek for knowledge. The normal word is gnosis. It means knowing about something. It has to do with propositional knowledge. You know about God. You have data about Him. This is epinosis, whereby Peter attaches a prefix, the design of which is to emphasize that the knowledge we are to have is beyond knowing about something, to the point of knowing something because we have experienced it. Peter says the key to knowing God is the promises of God. And the promises of God enable you to truly know Him. How many of you truly know God? How many of you have true knowledge of God? There's a uh, commercial out right now Nike makes. It's called Bo Knows. Bo Jackson, former Auburn University star, plays football for the Los Angeles Raiders, soon to be the Oakland Raiders, plays baseball for the Kansas City Royals. He is one of those rare personalities who can do it all. And Nike has capitalized on Bo by saying, Bo knows. Bo knows baseball. Bo knows football. Bo knows basketball. But do you remember what it says when they get to Wayne Gretzky and they talk about whether Bo knows hockey? Wayne says, no. Bo don't know hockey. As a matter of fact, Bo doesn't know diddly. You know the difference between Bo knowing baseball and Bo knowing hockey? He knows about hockey, but he doesn't play hockey. He doesn't know by way of true experience. He knows baseball that way, but not hockey. I have a daughter, 22 months old. I was there when she was born. I know birthing. I went to all those classes. But who Epi knows birthing? My wife? Or I. She epi knows. She experienced it. I just know about it. Some of us only know about God. We don't really know God. Who epi knows God? The person who studied about Him in a class? About His faithfulness? Or the one who has asked God, God, I need $105 by Friday and on Friday and some unusual way in the mailbox there's $105. Who knows about God's faithfulness? The person who read about it or the person who experienced it? You know what Peter is saying first and foremost we need to do? We need to take the promises of God and we need to put God to the test. We need to see if we really do know this God that we proclaim that we worship. The first step in becoming a partaker of the divine nature is to find those great and precious promises and apply them. And in so doing, you begin to experience the reality of God. When do you think Abraham knew God the most? When he got the promise or when he received the fruit of the promise in his son Isaac? Well, my uncle looked at me after hearing that 
little expression of truth out of Second Peter, and he said, right. I've applied those promises. And you know what you need to know? It doesn't work. I still sin. I still struggle like crazy with my lust of my flesh. And furthermore, that business of partaking and experiencing God, I don't know about that. That stuff doesn't work. Now hold it, Jim. It says right here that it does. Well, perhaps it's because he didn't get to verse 5. Because I think in verse 5 you find the most overlooked truth in the Word of God. You see, the promises are an act of God's grace. There's something He does for us. We simply lay hold of them by faith. But there's more to it than that. Look at verse 5. Now, for this very reason also. What reason? In order that you might partake, verse 4, of the divine nature. In order that you might escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this reason also, look at verse 5, apply all diligence in your faith. You know what that means? Work really hard. Diligence, spudazzo, means to make every effort to the point of pain. It's what Timothy heard from Paul when Paul said, Timothy, look, make every effort to come to me soon because Demas has forsaken me and I need you to come. Come fast. Do whatever it takes. Come to me. Make every effort. 2 Timothy 4, 9. Same word. Make every effort to apply some things in your faith. Why? In order that you might become a partaker of the divine nature. In order that you might escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. You know what? Some of us are willing to kill ourselves to do just about anything. We'll kill ourselves to make a team, to get an A on a paper. We'll kill ourselves to date that guy or that gal. I mean, we'll stand on our head and spit chiclets to work that out. We'll work really hard. I had two, two attorneys in my office the other day, and it was premarital counseling, and he said, well, I go to work at 7 and I come home about 8. And I said, how often do you do this? He said, oh, every day except Sunday. And then I only work afternoons. I said, you do that really? He said, yeah. I said, you want to do that? Yeah, I want to do that. How do you intend to have a relationship with this woman if you are always working? He said, that's the price I have to pay to get to where I want to go. Roger Reed of BYU University says of his basketball team, he said, I don't expect much of them. They go out, work hard, and come in the locker room and get sick. I feel like they've done a good job. You know what? We'll work really hard for a lot of things, but you know what we rarely work hard to do? No God. I want you to watch this. Now, for this very reason also, apply all diligence. Why? In your faith, you're to supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, Christian love. Seven ingredients that we must add to our faith in order to taste God, in order to to escape the corruption that is in the world. Now look at verse 8. For if these qualities, the ones aforementioned, if they are yours and are increasing, they do what? They render you neither useless nor unfruitful. 
So number one, if you do these things, you'll taste God. Number two, if you do these things, you'll escape the corruption that's in the world, overcome those temptations and lusts in your life. Furthermore, they guarantee that you won't be useless. You'll have fruit and value. Furthermore, verse 9, he who lacks these qualities is blind. Therefore, if you have these qualities, you're not blind. Not blind to what? Look at the end of verse 9, to the former purification from your sins. Do you want to have security of your salvation? Do you ever doubt that? Do you want to know that you know? Then if these qualities are in your life, the reciprocal idea of verse 9 is you won't doubt anymore. You won't be blind like you used to be to the former purification, i.e., you're coming to Christ. Look at verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, what things? That little ingredient list of seven items in verse 5 that you're to add to your faith. If you practice these things, what will happen? You will never stumble. The word stumble means you'll never fall back. You won't have the habitual practice of the roller coaster ride of spiritual regression. Furthermore, look at verse 11. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. You know what verse 11 means? It means when you get to heaven, there'll be somebody waiting on you, and they'll be real excited to see you, and that's God. You say, how in the world do you get that out of verse 11? You see the word entrance. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul uses the word entrance here in verse 9 of the first chapter of Thessalonians when he says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception, there's our word, we had with you. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception, what kind of a welcome, what kind of welcome we had with you. Now go back to 2 Peter chapter 1 and read that concept here because that's very definitely what Peter is saying. For in this way the reception or the welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. The word supplied simply means given. There will be a big, abundant, huge welcome given to you. When? When you get to heaven. Remember Janet Evans of Placentia, who won those four gold medals in the 88 Olympics? Do you remember what happened when she came home? Man, the folks were at the airport. She got the key to the city of Placentia. Her high school threw a big bash. Do you know what historians tell us? That when a Greek Olympic athlete came home to his town, that they would cut a big hole in the wall and they would make this big entrance and they would be there to honor him and greet him? Because that was their form of the ticker tape parade. Do you know what verse 11 is saying? It is saying that if these qualities exist in your life, if you work really, really hard to apply seven things to your life, not only will you be fruitful, not only will you have security in your salvation, not only will you stop the spiritual roller coaster, the stumbling, the constant type of falling away, but when you get to heaven, there'll be an entrance there. There'll be a welcome there. There'll be an abundant reception given to you. You know, when we were singing this morning that one song, It's Your Approval I Long For. Boy, isn't that the bottom line? 
Won't it be awesome when you get to heaven to stand before the living God and have Him give you an abundant welcome? Man, I want that. Well, you can have that. Verse 5, Now for this very reason also, apply all diligence in your faith. To do what? It says in verse 5, to supply. It means to add to. It means to put this stuff in like ingredients. I just learned to drink coffee. I didn't drink coffee before. Never liked it. Still don't like it unless I get the doctorate. One eight-ounce cup of coffee in my mug at church requires three sweet and low, one sugar, and two creamers. And I like that. Yeah, the guys on staff with me laugh at that too, but that's the way I like it. You know what that is? That's what this word is. Lavish supply. That's what it means in verse 5 when it says we're to add or to supply to our faith. How? Lavishly. A bunch of it. I add a bunch. God wants you to add a bunch. And you know how hard He wants to work you to work? To the point of pain. I used to practice three times a day in college for football. I used to throw footballs in the offseason. I used to run. I used to lift weights. You can tell I don't do any of that anymore. But I used to do all of that. Why? Just to make a team. I had a guy at our church lifted weights for 17 years, and I don't know if he was led of God or just was kind of pitying me, but he came to me and he said, Harry, he said, would you like to lift with me? Kind of get that body of yours in shape? I said, sure, Tim. He said, uh, he said well, well, why don't we start on Monday? I said, I don't know. I'm not all that motivated, number one. And number two, I don't have time. He said, how about this? I'll guarantee you that if you'll do what I tell you for six months, you'll be in the greatest shape of your life. I wanted you to know that was an attractive thought to me. I said, okay. I said, I want you to know I used to be in pretty good shape. So for you to make good on that promise, this is a significant deal. Well, I went six weeks. And a month ago, I saw Tim. He was in one of our services, and he came up to me, and I said, I hate you. <laughs> you promised me that in six months, I'd be in the best shape of my life. It wasn't Tim's fault, was it? It was my fault. If I would have done what he told me to do, I could have been in the best shape of my life. Let me ask you this. Would you like to be in the best shape of your spiritual life? Then if you are desiring that, are you willing to work hard at it? Because we as Christians don't do that very well at all. We do it as long as it's convenient. We do it as long as it feels good. We do it if it's comfortable, if we feel like it. Peter says, now for this reason also, apply all diligence in your faith to add seven things. We're going to begin today. We won't get done. But I want us to evaluate those seven things. Because it is my belief that for you to enjoy God and know Him as He would have you know Him, you need to work hard and you need to add these seven things. Number one, let's look at the list, verse five. The first ingredient you're to add to your faith is moral excellence or virtue. Now, what is that? That's kind of a nebulous term that sounds pretty. It's out there somewhere, but what does that really mean? When the Greeks used the word virtue or moral excellence, this is what they thought of it. 
They said it's when a man really believes something and he's willing to endure any hardship for that belief. It is a man who has honorable and noble ends in mind and is willing to suffer whatever it takes to secure those ends. Peter is saying if you want to know God, if you want to enjoy the benefits of your spiritual walk with Him, the first ingredient you've got to work real hard to add is the ingredient of noble character. It's two ideas. Honorable intentions coupled with manly courage. I got a phone call last week from my father. He's an avid wrestling fan. Now, not professional wrestling, that kind of orchestrated stuff. And I don't want to put that down. It's just not what I consider real wrestling. I'm talking about the kind where the guys don't know who's going to win. And my father goes to these wrestling matches in the state of New Jersey. And my best friend growing up is a head coach at a major high school in southern New Jersey. And his team was wrestling for the regional championships in southern New Jersey. And then the winners there go to the state championships. And in the 177-pound weight class, which is toward the end, right before the heavyweight class, there was wrestling one of Steve's wrestlers. And they were in the third period, and there are only three periods. And in the third period, Steve's wrestler was being beaten nine to three. And in the third period, the opponent who was winning picked up Steve's wrestler and put him to the mat, and in the judgment of the referee, slammed him. Now, unlike our TV version, you can't do that. If you slam someone to the mat and they cannot continue, you lose for slamming. Well, Steve's wrestler did not move. He was hurt. Steve goes out onto the mat, according to my father, and talks to his wrestler, and he can't continue. But in Steve's estimation, the slam was a judgment call. It may not have been a slam. Furthermore, Steve's opinion, this other man was by far the superior wrestler. And this is what my friend said to the man who slammed his wrestler. He said, look, if we forfeit here or if we fail to continue, you will lose. You will not go to the state championships in Princeton, New Jersey. You will go home. But it is my opinion you are the better wrestler. Furthermore, in my judgment, the slam may not have occurred. So what I've asked my wrestler to do is to continue for a few seconds, and I'm asking you to not make an offensive move. And then we will forfeit to you so that you can go to the States because you're the better man, the better wrestler, and I don't want you to lose on the opportunity to go to Princeton. So that's what they did. They restarted the bout. Steve's man, a few seconds later, forfeited because he couldn't continue. And the opposing wrestler went to Princeton and finished second in the state. And you know what that was? Moral excellence. You see, because he knew the noble thing to do, and he had the courage to do it. Do you not think that the young man on the mat who was hurt, his family, might have a difference of opinion? Do you think that all those fans in the stands who cry out for his high school might not persecute and rebuke and have a difference of view as to what that coach chose to do? I'll guarantee it. 
Beloved, if we'll know God, if we'll really know Him, we've got to determine that no matter what it costs us, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to think right. We're going to talk right. We're going to act right. We're going to be men and women of character. The second ingredient. Add to your faith, or in your faith supply, moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, you're to add knowledge. This is the word we talked about earlier. Gnosis. This is knowing about something. You know how you get gnosis? You study. Yeah, you work hard. You read books. You read your Bible. You study about God. Why? So that you'll have the necessary ingredients so that you may live your life for God. USA Today printed an interesting statistic not long ago. They said this. It's in their USA Today snapshots, and they say these statistics shape the nation. The question was asked, how often do you read the Bible? 22% of the people said, never. 26% said, less than monthly. 5% said, they can't even remember the last time they read their Bible. 22% said, they read it weekly. And only 11% said, we read it every day. I was thinking the other day. I've taken Sports Illustrated every year of my life since high school. I read it cover to cover, except for the swimsuit issue, which my wife censors. I thought of all the time and all the data that I know about sports. And I can tell you where guys played in college. I can tell you how many points they averaged. You know the. The shame of it all is most of us know a lot about some things, but very little about godly things. If I came up to you and said, can you tell me or show me how I can know that Jesus Christ is God? Out of your Bible, could you do that for me? If someone came up to you and said, can you show me truly, for certain, that Jesus claimed to be God, could you do that? I had a man in my office, been a Christian for many years. Thursday, 60 years old, in the process of getting a divorce after 23 years of marriage. And we opened the Bible and looked at Ephesians 5. You know what's there. All of that great oracle on marriage, what husbands are supposed to do and what wives are supposed to do, and all of the rich teaching on marriage. You know what he said to me? He said, I've never seen that in my life. I've not only never read it, I've never had anybody show me or teach me. You know what? There's a lot of the Bible we don't know. I play a game with my Awana boys. Sports trivia and Bible truth. They get Awana bucks if they can answer my sports trivia questions, and they get double the amount if they know Bible truth questions. You know what? It's amazing what we don't know. And it is amazing what we ought to know. Do you want to know God? Then you need to work real hard. Really? Yes, really. Apply all diligence. To do what? To supply some things to your faith. Really? Yes. 
moral excellence, character. Number two, knowledge. You better know God's Word. We need to spend less time reading magazines and listening to television and radio and more time focusing on the things of God. Wouldn't you agree? If that's indeed the way that we're going to taste God, then indeed that's what we ought to do. The truth is, most of us know much about God, or very little about God, and we know very little about His Word at all. You say, Harry, okay, how can I improve that? Number one, read your Bible a bunch. Number two... The word gnosis is used in 1 Peter 3 of husbands living with their wives in an understanding way. More than just knowing about God, you need to understand how the Scriptures are working. Therefore, necessary to knowing God or knowing about Him, you need to meditate on the truths you're learning so you know how they work. The Word of God, you need to expose yourself to its truth. And you need to meditate on its truth so that you can secure understanding. Proverbs 20.15 says, There is gold and there is an abundance of jewels, but knowledge is a more precious thing. And finally this morning, verse 3, excuse me, verse 5, the third quality we're to add to our faith is self-control. Self-control. The lexicon says this is the ability to rule one's spirit, to rule one's emotions, to rule one's desires and impulses according to principle and knowledge. It is the denial of the impulsive. How many of you are good at harnessing your passions? You get heated when you're in an argument or a discussion? Do you have trouble controlling your sexual drive? This is the same word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 7 when he says, some of them lack this quality. So because they lack this self-control, let them marry rather than burn. Do you lack self-control in your life? Do you struggle with the impulses that you have? I talked to a girl on Wednesday who struggles with eating habits. She says, man, I get the, I get the, the desire and, and I'll go back, buy a whole bag and I'll eat the whole bag. She said, man, I struggle with my self-control. I get angry. I'm irritable. I can't stop eating. Beloved, if we'll know God, if we'll become partakers of the divine nature, my Bible says, that we need to add the quality of self-control to our life. You say, now, Harry, Harry, how can I do that? Man, I want that. I know more than anybody else that I don't have any self-control. How can I develop that? Look at Titus chapter 1. When I was growing up, I played second base for our church softball team. Well, I didn't really play. At that time, I was more of their mascot. I went in when the game didn't matter. And I remember watching one of those games from the sidelines and the team that we were playing, their pastor was the pitcher. And there was a play at the plate. And in his opinion, the person was safe. But in the umpire's opinion, he was out. And you would not believe what went on for the next few minutes. I mean, that pastor had a good vocabulary. 
He did not cuss, but he called that umpire every sort of high-level word you could think of that meant he was nothing blind, could not see, and of no value to society. He got red in the face. He was loud of voice. You know what happened to him? He lost his ministry. People from that day on, and this is true, began leaving his church for lack of respect for him because he lost his control. And today a church of several hundred is 30 in attendance, dying, dead, of no value because a man didn't possess self-control. Titus chapter 1 talks of the qualities of a man who would be an overseer. And frankly, these are just examples of what you and I are to be, even as non-elder type folks. Look at what it says in verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach. Must be above reproach as God's steward. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered. Not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, nor fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout. You see our word? Self-controlled. Now here's the good part. Look at verse 9. This is a participle which modifies all that's just been said. And you know what it does? It tells us how these elders are supposed to secure these qualities. The last of which in line is self-control. Holding fast. The faithful word. We can put the little word by in there because it modifies the must be stuff. He must be all of these things. And he must do it by holding fast. The word means to cling to, to embrace to the bosom. You know what it takes to have self-control? Starting place is God's word. Holding fast the word of life. Verse 9, the word which is in accordance with the teaching. When I was in New York City in 1980, I spent a summer there, 13 weeks, sharing Christ every day except Sunday. We gave out tracts. We invited folks to the church. We shared the gospel. Every day telling people about Jesus Christ. And then every night I'd come home and there was this little gym on the side. It had an eight and a half foot hoop. And we would go toe-to-toe, the men on this team, there were 35 of us, and we would play every night. And I mean, I loved it, and I was their leader. But you know who controlled the results of those games? I did. You see, because I was very domineering, and I was determined that my will was going to have its way. And if it was a foul, it was a foul in my opinion. And you know what? I lost my testimony with my guys. Because they very quickly saw that Harry had very little self-control. Oh, I didn't scream, holler, cuss, or get mad. I just dominated with a very authoritative manner. And God convicted me, and I just want to share with you in closing today, and we'll pick the rest of these up on Wednesday. I want to share with you what God helped me do in order to overcome that, because I didn't have self-control. This is what I began to do. Number one, I could not play basketball again until I had done two things. Number one, stop eating for the following day. I don't know a lot about fasting. I've read a lot of books. It's a biblical thing. David said, I chastened my soul with fasting. I humbled myself with fasting. I've been on a seven-day fast, and I've, I didn't like that. I wanted to eat everything. 
And at the end of the 24-hour period in New York, I would have my tasty cakes and, you know, all the goodies ready to go. But for 24 hours, I couldn't eat. Why? Because my focus was to be away from the desires that I had toward the Word of God and the things of God. And it took me three or four times of that to determine I didn't want to do that anymore. And I would meditate on God's Word when I was supposed to be eating. I would not eat those three meals. And at the end of that time, at the end of those three or four weeks that I worked that out, you need to know that God freed me from the desire and the need to have to be in control of that basketball game. And I offer to you, based upon the authority of Titus 1, that if you'll hold fast to God's Word and begin to implement control in one area of your life, not giving in to those impulses. You say, what if I have sexual desire? I believe it'll still apply. You know, they say that the desire to eat is greater than the desire to indulge sexually or physically. That if you can get a handle on the physical desire to eat and meditate on God's Word and embrace it and draw it to you, you can be free. You can be free. Oh, I want with all of my heart this week that you'll desire to know God. Because the dominant issue in our society and in the church today is how in the world can I taste Him? How can I experience life that's truly life? May I offer you Second Peter chapter 1. Apply the promises and work really hard to add some things to your faith. Father, we thank you for...